asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Iowa Republicans, only six weeks until you decide how the 2024 presidential race will go and maybe the fate of American democracy. No pressure. The lead starts right now. Donald Trump's latest ploy, he claims it's President Biden, not him, who's the threat to American democracy. It's nonsense, of course. But what if it works and Trump wins a second term? I'm going to speak with some folks behind several new warnings spelling out the potential danger. Plus, Israel expanding its war, targeting Hamas in all of Gaza, even in the south where Israel first told Palestinians to flee for safety. The new strikes as influential voices speak up today at the UN, calling out Hamas atrocities from October 7th, largely uncondemned crimes by the international community, women sexually assaulted and raped by Hamas, and a Jewish and Israeli restaurant owner targeted and taunted by a mob. Just the latest supercharged moment of anti-Semitism in America. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with a warning about democracy in the United States. A warning from the man who himself may pose the greatest threat to American democracy in our lifetimes. With exactly six weeks until the crucial Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump is ignoring his Republican opponents, instead trying to flip the script on Joe Biden, accusing the current commander-in-chief of being hostile to democracy, much like Biden has been warning about Trump. So if Joe Biden wants to make this race a question of which candidate will defend our democracy and protect our freedoms, and I say to Crooked Joe, and he's crooked, the most corrupt president we've ever had, We will win that fight, and we're going to win it very big. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. It doesn't matter how many of these signs they print up. You see there, Biden attacks democracy. They printed a bunch of those up before Trump's event today. We all know, we all saw it with our own eyes, it was Donald Trump and his minions who tried to overthrow the 2020 election, tried to undermine Democracy, And we should be clear with Donald Trump's speech today, Donald Trump's so-called proof that Biden is a threat to democracy is a bunch of falsehoods and nonsensical claims, including that the 2020 election was rigged, which, of course, is a blatant lie, and that Biden, a devout Catholic, is using the government to infiltrate the Catholic Church. Also not true. But you don't have to take any of this from me. The real threat to American democracy, according to Liz Cheney, formerly one of the most conservative members of the House, is, well, listen to her terrifying thought presented earlier today. Do you believe if Donald Trump were elected next year that he would try to stay in office beyond a second term? That he would never leave office? There's no question. You think he would try to stay in power forever? Absolutely. A vote for Donald Trump Uh, may mean the last election that you ever get to vote in. And again, I I don't say that lightly, um, and it, it, I think, is heartbreaking that that's where we are. But people have to recognize that that a vote for Donald Trump is a vote against the Constitution. Now, it doesn't take a vivid imagination to see how Donald Trump might use his second term in office, because he has been pretty explicit about what he wants to do 
He plans to use the Justice Department to go after his enemies, starting with President Biden. He plans to fire all federal employees perceived as disloyal. He has discussed deploying the U.S. military inside the U.S. against Americans. So what is Liz Cheney's message to any voters who hear all of this and say, well, it can't be all that bad. There are checks and balances to prevent that sort of thing from happening. People who say, well, if he's elected, it's not that dangerous because we have all of these checks and balances, don't fully understand the extent to which the Republicans in Congress today um, have been co-opted. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of a, a sleepwalking into a dictatorship in the United States. Folks. I implore you, Google the term democratic backsliding. It happens. Democracy is not a guarantee. We can lose it. CNN's Kristen Holmes starts off our coverage today with a closer look at what exactly Donald Trump is promising to do if he wins a second term. Donald Trump attempting to turn the table on warnings his return to the White House would pose a threat to American democracy. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. The former president, who was facing felony charges over his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, claiming President Joe Biden is the real risk to the country. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. It's him and his people. They're the wreckers of the American dream. Spokesman for the Biden campaign calling Trump's comments a quote, desperate attempt at distraction. Trump's attacks come as Biden and his allies frame the 2024 election as a choice between democracy and authoritarianism, signaling how both candidates are increasingly focused on a potential general election rematch, even as the first votes in the Republican nominating contest won't be cast for another six weeks. We have to stand up for American values embedded in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, because we know the MAGA extremists have already proven they won't. We have to stand up for our constitution, our institutions, democracy, because MAGA extremists have made it clear they're not going to. Democrats aren't the only ones sounding the alarm about Trump's candidacy. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of a, a sleepwalking into a dictatorship in the United States. In his latest bid for the White House, Trump has continued to rail against democratic institutions and make false claims about the 2020 election. They rigged the presidential election in 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election in 2024. He also suggested the U.S. Constitution should be terminated in a social media post. And the former president has outlined plans to dramatically reshape the federal government, including a pledge to use the Justice Department to target political opponents. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly that would be, you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. In my case, and Jake, you asked a question at the beginning of the show. What if these arguments, what if Trump's rhetoric works with voters? And I do want to note that when I go to these rallies, even that rally over the weekend in Cedar Rapids, people were cheering for this argument that it was actually Biden because of the fact that Trump is facing these four indictments that was against democracy. And the other part of this that I want to lay out here is that, yes, Donald Trump is saying each of the things that he would do if he were to win presidency again. And despite that, 
He is still leading in the polls, not only in Iowa, the caucuses are just six weeks away, but nationally to be the GOP nominee. Jake. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's bring in my panel to discuss this. The dispatch is Jonah Goldberg, former Obama administration official, Nayara Huck, and ABC News chief Washington correspondent, Jonathan Carl, who has the newly released book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, which really has a lot of research in it about what a second Trump term would look like. Well, um, and I have to say, uh, there's a lot in there. But what, what's the most alarming stuff when you talk to Trump officials, former Trump officials, what do they warn you about would be the worst case scenario? The, the most alarming is what a second Trump term would look like. And this is a president coming back who has learned that he can break the law and get away with it. Somebody whose entire rationale for a second term is to get retribution against the people that he believes have been his enemies. And Jake, in that context, having virtually nobody around him willing to stand up to him, to challenge him, having a Trump, a second Trump term where you don't have people like John Kelly or the people that serve in the White House Counsel's Office, Pat Cipollone, Don McGahn, Bill Barr at the Justice Department willing to say no when Trump asked them to break the law. That's chilling. And Jonah, there's this uh, new uh, cover story in The Atlantic with a series of articles looking at a possible second Trump term. We're going to have more of that uh, coming up on the show. David Frum, in a section on autocracy, a Trump autocracy, writes, quote, in his first term, Trump's corruption and brutality were mitigated by his ignorance and laziness. Um, in a second, Trump would arrive with a much better understanding of the system's vulnerabilities, more willing enablers in, toll, in tow, and a much more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries and impunity for himself. And as John points out, uh, nobody like John Kelly, Bill Barr, willing to say stop. And more people, smart people like that uh, former OMB guy, uh, what's his name, Russ Vought? Russ Vought, yeah. Yeah, Russ Vought, like, who knows how to make it happen for him. Uh, is that alarmist, do you think, or is that accurate? Yeah, I, I don't think necessarily it, it... The question of autocracy is an important one and a legitimate one to talk about and all that kind of stuff. But you don't have to get there. The threshold is, would it be bad? Right? I mean, it's like, this is one of the things, I, I'll talk to audiences while I'll say, you know, Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Right. And they get angry at me. And it's like, look, more seriously, like, you can come way short of being Hitler and still qualify as bad. Right. And Trump will go in, he could be, he's still going to be the incompetent guy that he is, but it's the point that Jonathan is getting at. It's that all of the people around him will feel empowered to, to fight for the worst version of Trump, right? The people that all of the MAGA people despise, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, uh, Barr, you go down this list, these were, in fact, circuit breakers who used Trump to get things accomplished. Now that's all gone, and it will just simply be, um, you know, a lot of fifth-string intellects who are... who. Who think being turned down by the being thrown out by the courts is a good thing for them because it lets them wage another battle about the legitimacy of the courts and the legitimacy of the law and all these kinds of things. And people who will say yes, sir, with the Insurrection Act rather than no, sir. And that's what's what's scary to me. Well, Kevin McCarthy learned that the hard way, right? And that's going to be the challenge after Iowa are the number of people that will line up behind the nominee because he's the one on that side of the aisle who has the power. Six people raise their hand saying that they would ultimately support Trump, even though they're all trying to run for his position right now. You have right now in America a, a country that 
30% of the population, rather, trust in U.S. institutions is at a record low. Mm -hmm. And you have a president who has capitalized on influencer culture to say he and him alone is the person that you can trust. So the combination of how we consume information and the fact that every institution is down in the gutter in terms of opinion has been, you know, magical cesspot for Trump. And there is a possibility that... Uh DeSantis or Nikki Haley could have some surprise showing, or Christie, I suppose, could have some surprise showing in Iowa, New Hampshire. But it is also quite possible that Donald Trump just runs the table for the first four contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. It's possible. I mean, he's the, he's the front runner. Uh, most people talk about it like the race is already over. Jake, you've covered enough uh, Iowa, New Hampshire uh, primaries and caucuses to know that surprises happen. And also, th there is a sense that people have not really paid attention to this question of what a second Trump term would look like. It's hard to say that Donald Trump is undercovered, but I think he has been undercovered. Yeah. There's been massive attention paid to the legal cases, but very little attention to what it would be like if he comes back into the White House. I think he's more volatile now than he has been before. I think that he has, again, much less restraints on him, no guardrails. I think we could be in for a surprise in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then perhaps all bets are off. But the more likely scenario is that he runs the table. I also have to say, and there's been a lot of coverage of Joe Biden showing his age, and I think we could all agree that that's true. Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump is certainly showing his age. No, and by the way, he's not campaigning with anywhere near the vigor that he did in 2016, certainly, or even 2020. I mean, he plays a lot of golf now. Yeah. Uh, he spends a lot of time uh, with his lawyers. He, he's not doing very much, which I think is actually been helpful to his campaign. Yeah. So uh, I, mean, I think most of the indictments are legit. I think the New York ones are were sure. dumb. And well, sure. we, can, we can parse them, right? But Trump said something that's kind of true. They're going to indict me into the presidency. People forget DeSantis, before he announced and had that bad announcement, DeSantis was beating Trump in the polls. It's, it's the, this thing with the negative polarization in our culture where a lot of people say they're coming after Trump, so I have to support Trump because they're coming after him. And I don't know how you can't unring that bell now. But I don't, a lot of people say, well, if, what if he actually gets you know, convicted or something? I don't know that that fixes the, this bond that he has now got with a big chunk of the GOP electorate. Well, he's asking for what otherwise in a democracy we would call transparency, uh, but for him is free televised um, attitude and thumbing his nose to the courts. And he wants, he wants everyone to see him in court, uh, pushing back against judges, freewheeling and, and not disregarding rule of law entirely and getting away with it. But now you're, let me ask you just, does the Democrat at the table here, I mean, your guy's losing to him. <laughs> by voters, right? And by polls. Yeah. I'm not sure what more Joe Biden can do to remind people what is at stake, right? That's the State of the Union theme, soul of democracy, uh, constantly talking about battle for the soul of the country on the world stage. There is a responsibility for everybody else to also take the challenge just as seriously as the, Repub as the Democratic Party is in the White House right now. I mean, I know incumbents in general are not popular right now, but do you ever think maybe we should have a new candidate? No. no. <laughs> a new candidate would not have the bully pulpit of the White House.
right, yeah. would not have a core of reporters that are covering his every move, which I would ask, as we discuss this here and just let slide that Trump is close enough in age to uh, Biden and also that um, Trump's speeches are largely incoherent and have been from the jump. But like somehow that narrative is the Biden narrative here. I, I do think that the benefit that he has is as we get closer to the day, and as you said, people pay attention, uh, that the, the difference will become clear. But I'm, I'm hanging on to hope here. Yeah, if there was another candidate, Biden could still use the bully pulpit, but also yeah. lets a younger person run against Trump. John Carl, any thought, last thoughts? Well, well look, uh, Trump has had a, done a very good job of losing elections since 2016. Every <laughs> single cycle, midterm, special elections, runoff elections, Republicans have either lost or underperformed. And that's largely due to Trump's influence. So, yes, we, we may see uh, him doing beating in some polls, but losing in other polls. I mean, look, general election polls at this point are pretty much worthless. Yeah, we'll see what happens. John Carl, the book again, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. Pick yourself up a copy. Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa all coming up. <laughs> coming up, a key issue when it comes to winning Iowa. I'll speak with a man who looked into Donald Trump's relationship with evangelicals after nearly a decade of getting to know him and all his past transgressions. Stay with us. And we are back with our 2024 lead with just six weeks until Republican voters caucus in Iowa. Candidates are courting one of the state's most influential groups, evangelical Christians, specifically white evangelical Christians. Ron DeSantis recently was endorsed by prominent evangelical Bob Vanderplantz, and he just wrapped up a 99-county swing in the Hawkeye State. But he remains nearly 30 percentage points behind Trump in the latest poll from the Des Moines Register. Joining us now is Tim Alberta. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic, and he has a new book titled The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. The book comes out tomorrow. Congratulations, Tim. Uh, so exciting. Um, Thanks, Jake. Vanderplatz, pretty certain that America will not elect Trump, do, do other evangelical leaders in Iowa and throughout the country, do they share that concern and certainty? Well, I don't think they share the, the certainty. Uh, in fact, when you sort of survey the, the rank and file evangelical pastor uh, around the country, as I've done over the last couple of years, I think there's almost a resignation uh, to the idea that, you know, Trump for this short term, probably the intermediate term at least, has a pretty good hold on a lot of their congregants and that they're not going to deviate from him anytime soon. Uh, Bob Vanderplatz has had sort of a, a long running feud with Trump. In fact, some of the reporting that's come out of my book around Trump using disparaging vulgar language to refer to certain Iowa evangelicals that was aimed towards Bob Vanderplatz himself, among others. So it's no surprise that he would endorse Ron DeSantis. I don't think that there's any question that uh, Trump re re retains an overwhelming lead among white evangelicals in Iowa and elsewhere. I think the question really, at least in a political frame, Jake, is not whether Trump is winning big majorities of these voters, both in the primary and in the general, but how many of these voters show up next November? Is there any sort of a fall off because of the Trump exhaustion we see with some of these evangelicals? Ted Cruz's campaign mocked Trump in 2016 when Trump uh, infamously cited two Corinthians. Uh, you write, quote, when Cruz's allies began using the two Corinthians line to attack him in the final days before the Iowa caucuses, Trump told one Iowa Republican official, you know, these so-called Christians hanging around with Ted are some real pieces of shit, unquote. I only curse on air when uh, 
generally speaking, when I'm quoting someone. How do Trump-supporting evangelicals square that, the fact that he was ignorant uh, about Scripture, uh, not to mention all the other ways in which Donald Trump is not exactly square with the good book? Do they just ignore it? Are they just happy with the fact that he was very responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade? How do they justify it to themselves? Well, Jake, it's a great question, obviously. And there's sort of a fascinating uh, psychological arc here to understand. Whereas at this point, eight years ago, a lot of these white evangelical voters were very uneasy with Trump and they viewed his lack of familiarity with scripture and his behavior and his rhetoric. They viewed those things as weaknesses and they sort of entered into this very uneasy transactional relationship with him where they said, look, you know, he's the nominee now and uh, he's going to give us some of these policy victories we really want in exchange for our votes. That transactional relationship has now morphed into something else entirely, which is to say specifically that to the point about the the uh, the 91 indictments and his uh, rhetoric around not letting non-Christians into the country, and you know Trump being a, a decidedly more antagonistic, uh, militant candidate this time around, especially with his with his uh, bearing towards uh, the the non-evangelicals in this country, talking about how he will be their retribution and how he will essentially wield Christianity as a weapon. They are all for that in part because they have come to view Trump as almost a righteous protector, as someone who, because he is not a Christian himself, he's not bound by biblical virtue, he's not, he doesn't have to play by their rules, and that's almost his superpower. It, it gives him an ability to do things to protect this Christian coalition, if you will, that no other candidate would be willing to do. In your book, you write about your upbringing in the church and evangelicals such as your, your dad, who was a pastor, believed and preached that integrity, integrity was a prerequisite for political leadership, but, but that seems to have changed. Yeah, and, and the simplest explanation for it, Jake, as to why it's changed is what you'll hear from a lot of evangelical Christians around the country, which is that they are under siege which is that Christianity is under attack in this country, in the culture, from the secular, godless left. And just look at COVID-19, they shut down our churches, uh, transgenderism on the march, all of these things. And, and they will point to that and say, look, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Donald Trump, th this, this uh, you know, if you feel as though barbarians are at the gates, then you might just be willing to turn to a barbarian to do your fighting for you. Our mutual friend and my boss, Jeff Goldberg, said this to me the other day. He said, you're almost describing this like a mercenary relationship. And I said, that's kind of exactly what it is. Uh, for people who feel that they are threatened in this way, they're willing to turn to a man who shares none of their values and in fact, perhaps that is their greatest attraction to him. That's fascinating. There are clear parallels between the growing divide in the Republican Party and in the evangelical community. What do you make of Speaker Mike Johnson's rabid rise to power, given his strong religious identity? Yeah, well, you know, when Mike Johnson says essentially that the Bible is his governing handbook, Jake, uh, you know, that's that's not a fringe position. Uh, we, we shouldn't necessarily treat it as something that is far out of the evangelical mainstream. I think what's important to recognize, and a lot of us are uncomfortable even saying this out loud, but there is very much an ascendant movement on the right in this country that would seek to abolish any sort of firewall between church and state, there will be people working in a second Trump term, and I report on this a bit in the book, who are very much invested in this idea 
of merging uh, the, 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 the power of the church at some official level, whether it's through a declaration or some executive order. But again, we heard Trump, even in his rhetoric on the campaign trail a couple of weeks ago, saying, floating this idea that nobody would be able to come to this country as a migrant moving forward unless they are a Christian. So effectively, a, a religious litmus test. So you have real strands of Christian nationalism now that are infecting the highest echelons of the Republican Party, and that's something the country is going to have to address sooner rather than later. Tim Alberta, thank you so much, and congratulations. The new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, comes out tomorrow. Everything Tim writes is fascinating, well-written, and worth a read. Congratulations again, my friend. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Coming up next, Israel's expanded airstrikes and ground operation, this time hitting home, killing many members of the family of a CNN journalist. We're going to go live to the region next. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with our world lead and a look at Gaza moments ago where the IDF is expanding its airstrikes and its ground operation from northern Gaza to all of Gaza. Uh, the orange glow, if you see it, it, it portions of the strip are on fire uh, this evening. Israel had warned innocent civilians to evacuate south as the IDF attacked the north and is now urging innocents to move further south as their targeting of Hamas expands, the United Nations believes that more than 80% of Gaza's total population, nearly 1.9 million people, 1.9 million are displaced along all of Gaza. CNN's Alex Marquardt is in Tel Aviv, Israel. Alex, the collapse deal to pause fighting between Hamas and Israel is a thing of the past. Um, how is Israel handling this next phase of the war? Well, Jake, the intense fighting has returned, and once again, civilians are caught in the middle. Uh, Israel announcing that it has expanded its ground invasions to the entire ground operations to the entire Gaza Strip. We did see Israel operating in southern Gaza today. Uh, Israeli airstrikes also across the entire Gaza Strip today. Overnight, there were some 200. Uh, the uh, IDF spokesperson today calling those airstrikes very significant. We also saw close quarters fighting on the ground between. Hamas militants and Israeli forces in northern Gaza, at least two Israeli soldiers were killed. The Israeli operations in the north are expected to wrap up soon, and then the focus is certainly expected to turn south, specifically in and around the city of Khan Yunus, where Israeli and U.S. officials believe that at least some of Hamas leadership has, has gone. But Jake, as you know, Israel has told Gazans in the north to flee south, and now they're telling them to go even farther south. 
How are they doing that? Well, they're posting on social media. They are dropping leaflets with QR codes that then take you to a, a very complicated map. I think we have a picture of that map. It has almost 2,400 uh, different zones so that Israel can tell Palestinians, uh, okay, you need to move to a different zone to be safe. But Jake, not only is it complex, but also that just assumes that Gazans can get access to the internet. Today, we saw a widespread blackout um, in Gaza City across northern Gaza. So you cannot uh, assume that Gazans are seeing uh, any of this. In the meantime, we are hearing increased alarm from top Biden administration officials, including the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who said that Israel could win tactically against Hamas, but they could lose in the, in the long run strategically. Take a listen. Fight. The center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. And Jake, now the estimated death toll, admittedly from the Gaza, from the Hamas-run uh, Ministry of Health, is approaching 16,000. Jake, and there, this renewed fighting means more bloodshed and more terror for the innocent people in Gaza. Um, who are unfortunately dying along with members of Hamas. And those innocents include members of the family of one of our own CNN reporters, Alex. Yeah, this is hitting really close to home for CNN today, Jake. Uh, Ibrahim Dahman uh, is a CNN producer whom many will remember for his dispatches in the first month of the war, uh, showing how his family was surviving, how they were fleeing the fighting, and, and how they eventually, uh, thankfully, got out to Egypt. But today we learned uh, that nine of Ibrahim's family members were killed in a strike in northern Gaza. They say they were trapped uh, in, in a house in northern Gaza, his aunt's house that was hit by a strike. Nine family members killed. Ibrahim's own home uh, in Gaza City was also destroyed. Just a horribly sad day. And of course, our thoughts go out to Ibrahim Dahman's family. Jake. Alex Marquardt in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. The Hamas-controlled health ministry in Gaza says more than 15,800 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza since October 7th. Um, the Israel Defense Forces dispute those figures, although privately, IDF estimates that they have killed around 5,000 members of Hamas. As this war continues, the World Health Organization says the disease in Gaza could ultimately become deadlier than the airstrikes. As CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports for us now, the destruction of humanitarian infrastructure is only fueling the suffering for the millions desperately trying to survive. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And in Gaza, if that means looting the local bakery destroyed overnight by an Israeli airstrike, so be it. Look at the people, says Ikram Arai. They're doing this out of hunger. It was the Baraka Bakery. Baraka is Arabic for blessing. But now Gaza is under the curse of war. It was the last functioning bakery in Deir el-Bela. People's basic needs. Striking it is a kind of terrorism. Once the sun came up Monday, people of all ages descended upon the bakery. Taking away bags of flour, cooking oil, scraps of wood to use for cooking and heating, and just about anything else they could carry away. This man describes it in one word, chaos. 
The World Food Program's Abir Atefa warns the people of Gaza are reaching the breaking point. When you have civil order breaking down completely because people are becoming desperate, hopeless, hungry, by the moment, this is of course uh, bound to happen. And with Israeli ground forces now operating in southern Gaza, the hundreds of thousands who fled the north in search of safety are now, even more than before, in the line of fire. Gaza, after almost two months of war, has come to this. And what we're hearing from a variety of UN officials is that they are increasingly alarmed at the prospects of what's going to happen next in Gaza. In fact, Martin Griffiths, the UN relief chief, uh, just put out a statement saying, every time we think things cannot get more apocalyptic in Gaza, they do. People are being ordered to move again with little to survive on, forced to make one impossible choice after another. Jake. Ben, wait a minute in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. There are reverberations at home. Next, the White House reaction to that pro-Palestinian crowd that targeted an Israeli-owned restaurant owner last night in my hometown of Philadelphia. Stay with us. In our world lead, the White House and Philadelphia mayor are condemning a pro-Palestinian protest outside a falafel shop because the owner is a Jewish Israeli. Goldie is one of several Israeli-owned restaurants targeted in an attempted boycott. Demonstrators shouted, we charge you with genocide. I guess because the Jewish Israeli owner exists? CNN's Danny Freeman has a closer look at the incident and other acts of ignorance stemming from the conflict in the Middle East. On Sunday night, pro-Palestinian protesters marched through the streets of Philadelphia. At one point, stopping at the Jewish-owned restaurant Goldie and chanting. Goldie, which serves primarily falafel sandwiches, is owned by a pair of James Beard Award-winning restaurant owners who are Jewish and specialize in Israeli food. The witness who provided this video told CNN the protesters only stayed for about five minutes before moving on through the city. The larger planned protest ultimately marched across nearly 20 city blocks. There was no apparent damage at Goldie, and police did not say whether there were any reports of vandalism at the restaurant. However, local, state, and federal leaders quickly and forcefully condemned the demonstration at this Jewish business as anti-Semitic. What we saw last night was not peaceful protests. What we saw last night, in my opinion, was blatant anti-Semitism. The White House releasing a statement Monday reading in part, it is anti-Semitic and completely unjustifiable to target restaurants that serve Israeli food over disagreements with Israeli policy. This behavior reveals the kind of cruel and senseless double standard that is a calling card of anti-Semitism. This latest incident, just one of many recently charged moments across the country. In Williamsburg, Virginia, a festival organizer came under criticism Sunday after a Jewish organization said an upcoming menorah lighting was canceled because the event, quote, did not want to appear to choose sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict. 
The festival organizers said the lighting was never officially scheduled and the event has never had any religious affiliations. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Burlington, Vermont, where three Palestinian students were shot over the Thanksgiving weekend, one, Hisham Arwatani, remains hospitalized. His mother telling CNN he is now paralyzed from the chest down. Authorities are still investigating whether the gunman was motivated by hate. Back in Philadelphia, Goldie was busy for the lunch rush Monday, as many went out of their way to support the local Jewish business. It actually brought me almost to tears when I was standing in line and seeing how people kept coming in and coming in and, and how backed up they were, really. It was beautiful. Now, Jake, we reached out to Goldie's parent company and owners for comment on this story. They, though, declined our interview request. Jake? All right, Danny Freeman, thanks so much. Coming up next, the new raids in Russia just one day after Moscow tried to outlaw what it calls the international LGBTQ movement. Authorities in Russia are intensifying a crackdown on the LGBTQ community. Police raided three gay venues in Moscow over the weekend. The raids took place just one day after the Russian Supreme Court's decision to outlaw the, quote, LGBTQ movement and label it an extremist organization. CNN's Fred Pleiken is live in Berlin. Fred, what more can you tell us about these raids in light of the court's decision? Hi there, Jake. Well, they certainly are having a, a chilling effect on the LGBTQ community uh, there in Russia. And it really is hard to overstate the amount of fear, a downright fear that is uh, certainly going around in that community. All this happened <clears throat> in the night from Friday to Saturday where those three venues were raided by police. The music was turned off. People were searched, were frisked. Some of them had to take their clothes off. Um, no one was detained in those raids. We do have that from Russian media. However, they did say that documents were photographed by those police officers obviously some in the LGBTQ community fearing that there could be uh, further issues for them down the line with now the authorities in possession of those photographs. The Russians, of course, saying that these were regular drug raids. However, there are folks in the LGBTQ community who say that this did have a big chilling effect on them. And of course, as, as you rightly stated, Jake, this came basically just hours after the Russian Supreme Court came down with that verdict that also labeled members, as they put it, of the international LGBTQ community as extremists, which could have serious repercussions for those folks in Russia, Jake. And this ruling comes nearly one year after Putin signed that law that banned mm. uh, what he called LGBTQ propaganda in Russia. Why is he targeting the com this community? Yeah, you know what? I was I was in Russia when when that uh, came down from Vladimir Putin, and that essentially made it illegal in Russia to display anything showing uh, gay pride or, or any sort of rainbow flag or anything of that sort. Again, part of that ongoing crackdown. Vladimir Putin has been trying to self-style himself, Jake, as somewhat uh, of the defender, as he puts it, of conservative values. He's obviously very close also to the Russian, Russian uh, Orthodox Church, but he's also trying to do that on a global scale now, and a lot of that also has to do with his opposition to the West. One of the things that we hear uh, from Russian politicians and from Vladimir Putin is that he feels that Russian culture could be infected, as he puts it, by the LGBTQ community. And of course, it's down that same line, Jake, that Vladimir Putin very frequently also justifies his invasion of Ukraine, also likening it to a struggle of Russia against the West led by the U.S., Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin, thanks so much. Coming up, one of the most underreported, unspoken, uncondemned atrocities by Hamas 
We've covered it here on The Lead. Women sexually assaulted and raped during the October 7th attack. And now some very influential voices are trying to make sure people know what happened. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what if Donald Trump wins? I'll speak with some of the authors behind 24 new essays in The Atlantic magazine, breaking down what they call Donald Trump's threat to the United States and the world and the lack of guardrails to keep him in line. Plus, 250 days detained unfairly, unjustly in Russia. I'll speak with the parents of American journalist Evan Gershkovich. And leading this hour, Israel expanding its ground operation against Hamas in Gaza, all of Gaza, including southern Gaza. Today, the Red Cross described the level of human suffering in Gaza as intolerable. We're going to start today with CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who's in Stirot, Israel. Jeremy, tell us about how Israel is expanding its ground offensive in southern Gaza. Well, Jacob, we saw how critical tanks were as Israel made its way into northern Gaza over the last month. And I sat down with Israel's top tank commander to talk about how tanks are going to play a central role in the offensive in the south, as just today, the first Israeli tanks were spotted in southern Gaza. As Israel expands its ground offensive into southern Gaza... I think it's no more question if the tank is uh, relevant or not relevant for this war. Brigadier General Hisham Ibrahim, the head of Israel's Armored Corps, says tanks will once again be central to Israel's urban warfare strategy. Our tanks everywhere. In the urban area, when you attack, you have in the beginning the tanks firing and attack first, and then just the infantry come and be close with the tanks. Israeli tanks were at the tip of Israel's offensive into northern Gaza in late October, clearing the way for infantry troops to move into dangerous and densely populated cities. So you're using the tanks to clear the area yeah, yeah. so that infantry troops can move yeah, in? Exactly. Ibrahim says this kind of coordination is a lesson learned from Russian failures in Ukraine. We saw that where the Russians fought only with tanks alone, they were more vulnerable. This combination of combined power overcomes almost every problem on the battlefield. Israeli tanks are pushing through, not around, residential buildings, reducing entire neighborhoods to rubble to minimize the risk to Israeli troops. But that also means that you have to destroy a lot of residential buildings. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. We're firing for the buildings, we... Uh, destroyed, but we uh, make sure that this building is empty from uh, citizens and uh, we just destroyed what we uh, uh, have to destroy. We've Not seen a lot of civilians die in but, Gaza. Yeah, but we, we make sure before that we uh, attack Gaza that the citizens go uh, south. You know, this is war. 
Israeli tanks have also become a top target. They have RPG and they want to destroy the tank because for them, this is the win picture. In a series of propaganda videos, Hamas fighters are seen ambushing Israeli tanks. But General Ibrahim says these fiery explosions often show the tanks' anti-missile systems in action. So Hamas take the out of commission. Zero. Zero. We have tanks that we expect to last maybe some, a few days to fix them and they go back to the battlefield. But destroyed, zero. Zero. His troops, though, are paying a heavy price. The first RPG that was fired hit the tank, penetrated it, and I got hit by the shrapnel. During a visit to wounded soldiers, General Ibrahim says his corps has suffered more casualties per capita than any other. This is because we are on the front line. The tank corps is the corps that is winning this war. This is our war. And General Ibrahim made very clear that that cost is likely to continue to rise as the Israeli military pursues this same strategy in the south. Uh, this time they will be facing an enemy that has prepared, that has learned from the way in which tanks have operated in northern Gaza. So while the Israeli military pursues the same strategy in the south, General Ibrahim made clear that it is likely to be more complicated. Jake. Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. A seminar earlier today at the United Nations revealed horrific stories of rape and sexual violence during Hamas's attack on October 7th. I want to warn viewers, some of what I'm about to describe and the images you might see coming up are disturbing. Survivors of the Hamas attack are sharing what they witnessed on October 7th, descriptions of women lying dead without clothes, elderly women without underwear, girls with their pelvises broken, purportedly from rape, women bleeding from their private parts, horrible, nightmarish descriptions of Hamas's barbaric attacks against Israeli girls and women. Today, the United Nations held a special session focusing on the sexual violence committed by Hamas. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated rape and sexual violence, exploiting these unforgivable crimes as weapons of war. Nearly two months after the October 7th attacks, the international community is finally beginning to investigate and recognize reports of brutal and inhumane rapes and sexual assaults by Hamas terrorists, torturing and terrorizing the people of Israel. For weeks, Israeli police have been collecting eyewitness testimony, video and forensic evidence detailing countless accounts of rape and sexual assault perpetrated by terrorists on Israeli women and children. And for weeks, there has been very little outcry or condemnation from the international community, including from the United Nations. Sadly, the very international bodies that are supposedly the defenders of all women showed that when it comes to Israelis, indifference is acceptable. To these organizations, Israeli women are not women. The rape of Israelis is not an act of rape. Their silence has been deafening. But Monday, the United Nations held a gathering hosted by Israel, examining sexual and gender-based violence committed during Hamas's attack on Israel. Hamas has denied committing any rapes or sexual assaults. There are exactly no circumstances that justify rape. None. Rape is targeted. Rape is terror. Rape is torture. 
doesn't just strike fear in the hearts of Israeli women. It strikes fear in the hearts of every woman and girl around the globe. Their bodies are not the chief superintendent of the Israeli police read numerous accounts of the atrocities witnessed by survivors and first responders. Everything was an apocalypse of corpses. Girls without any clothes on, without tops, without underwear. People cut in half, butchered. Some were beheaded. There were girls with a broken pelvis due to repetitive rapes. Their legs were spread wide apart in a split. A police officer testified, I couldn't drive because there was a baby cradled full of blood on the road. A baby that was outside his cradle and a naked woman lying next to the baby's body. She was naked, <coughs> badly injured bullets in her body. A witness from the rape party testified, we heard girls that were pulled out from the shelters. Girls that shouted, they raped girls, burned them just after that. All the bodies outside were burned. A rescuer that arrived to a house on a kibbutz testified, Inside the shower, there was a body of a cuffed woman. She was without her underwear. The body was in the corner, and her hands were tied. Another testimony from the rape party survivor. Women without clothes. Some without the upper body clothes. Some without the lower body clothes. Blood over the lower body. Everyone was full of blood. Butchered people. We found a woman's body dumped outside without pants, without underpants, burned, barely any hair left on her. And videos were played from a first responder, a paramedic, and a survivor of the music festival detailing firsthand what they experienced. The two we had were bound by their hands. Their hands were behind their back. There was a body of a woman that had a blood stain on her genitalia. There was a lot of gun wounds there. Shooting was targeted at sexual organs. We saw that a lot. They had a thing with sexual organs, both in women and in men. The women we received they were civilian. We mainly saw either breast amputations or gunshots just to the breast, simply shooting from one side of the breast to the other. They were conscious when they got to us. They laid a woman down, and I understand that he's raping her. He's basically shifting her position, and then they pass her on to another person. Was she alive, the girl they raped? Yes, she was alive. She had long hair. He was pulling her hair. She's not dressed, and he cuts her breast. He throws it on the road, and they're playing with it. Another survivor of the attack describes seeing a horrific rape at the Nova Music Festival to London's Sunday Times. I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel, and eight or ten of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you're doing. 
just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing, and the last one shot her in the head. Do we believe the Hamas spokesperson who said that rape is forbidden, therefore it couldn't have possibly happened on October 7th? Or do we believe the women whose bodies tell us how they spent the last minutes of their lives? Who are we going to believe? The Israeli government says there are still 17 women and children who are either still being held by Hamas or are missing. They include three children, a four-year-old Ariel Bibas, 10-month-old Kfir Bibas, 18-year-old Liri Albag, and four women not in the military, 26-year-old Noah Argamani, 19-year-old Karina Ariev, 19-year-old Agam Berger, 32-year-old Shiri Bibas, who's the mother of Ariel and Kfir Bibas. Hamas claims that the Bibas family members, the mom and the two kids, were killed in an Israeli airstrike, though that has not been confirmed. The IDF says it's continuing to look into the claim. 28-year-old Amit Buskila Esther, 38-year-old Carmel Gott, 19-year-old Daniela Gilboa, 23-year-old Romy Gonan, 27-year-old Inbar Haiman, 19-year-old Naama Levy, 30-year-old Daron Steinbrecher, 70-year-old Juhi Weinstein Hagai, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, 28-year-old Arbel Yehud, 24-year-old Eden Yerushalmi, 28-year-old Eden Zakaria. Hamas claims that some of the women still being held captive are, in fact, soldiers. It's a claim that Israel rejects. Now, you might have noticed that most of those women are in their teens or 20s. One of them you saw being kidnapped, and she had a bloody stain soaking her pants between her legs. And if you are worried about what Hamas might be doing with these women in their teens and 20s, you are not alone. Sources tell me that this is, in fact, a big fear among top Israeli officials. Uh, And we heard a bit more about this fear, and that's all it is as of right now, a fear from the U.S. State Department earlier today. Near the end of that pause, last Wednesday, Thursday, when we were getting towards the end, uh, Hamas was still holding on to women that should have been the next to be released. They refused to release them. Uh, They broke the deal. Came up with excuses why, ultimately, I don't think any of those excuses were credible, and I shouldn't get into any of them here. Um, but certainly one of the, the, the reasons that a number of people believe they refused to release them is they didn't want people to hear what those women would have to say publicly. Well, I, don't, I, 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 I won't say fact because I don't know it for a fact. Now, when pushed on this, State Department spokesman Miller went on to note and underline, Hamas has never given a credible reason as to why they reneged on the deal to release these women. And he underlined he does not know definitively as to why they have not released these women. A senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will join us next. We're back with our world lead and the 17 women and children the Hamas continues to hold hostage, not including the men, not including the soldiers. I want to bring in Mark Regev, who is a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, Mark, the U.S. State Department said today, Uh, that it's worried Hamas is not releasing these young women hostages, possibly, possibly, because Hamas doesn't want them to speak about how they have been mistreated. Um, Why do you think they haven't released them? So I can only speculate. And of course, we have grave, grave concerns. 
You know, today the the head of the children's hospital that is treating the the children who've been released gave a briefing, and and she her report was very grave, and troubling. And here we're talking about the small children, yes, uh, who she said looked like shadows of children when she first met them. And they had all sorts of issues uh, uh, and uh, both medical issues, physical uh, conditions, and they also had obviously psychological trauma. And uh, it, it, we know who we're dealing with when we talk about Hamas. We're dealing with a brutal uh, organization capable of the most horrific violence. I mean, the fact that they, they took a nine-month-old baby hostage, two-year-olds, four-year-olds. It's truly horrific. So, unfortunately, we're very lucky that we managed to get over 100 people out during the humanitarian pause. But those people who remain, we have to be very, very concerned about their fate and have no illusions about who's this enemy that we're dealing with, Hamas. Mark, what did you make of the comments um, by the Secretary of Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, um, that ultimately the campaign has been so brutal by the IDF that you may be strategically losing the larger battle uh, by chasing the Palestinian people into the arms of Hamas? So, so we, we, we were having a close dialogue with the Americans. Uh, they are our, our best friend. and we, we take seriously everything that they say, and, and we are very attentive. But I think ultimately when this war is over, Hamas's path of extremism and, and radicalism and terror, horrific terror, as we've just discussed, will be discredited because the people of Gaza, when they are finally free of this autocratic regime, uh, they will be able to speak out. And, and, and though they might not be in love with Israel, there's all sorts of reasons for historic animosity. They will be have all this pent-up anger against Hamas for, for, for bringing this, this crisis. I mean, they know, the people of Gaza know who started this war. They know why Israel is responding. They know that Hamas refused to leave, uh, release more hostages and therefore the humanitarian pause was not extended. The people of Gaza know this better than anyone else. And when this is over, I, I, I'm sure you'll see an explosion of, of, of pent-up rage by the people of Gaza or against Hamas for everything that they have brought upon uh, 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 Gazans. That might be wishful thinking, Mark. There are a lot of innocent people being killed by bombs that Israel is raining down upon Gaza. Uh, and even if, uh, as, as I know, the IDF uh, believes that, you have, that, the, that Israel has killed 5,000 members of Hamas, um, that's thousands of innocent people, including women and children, babies that, that Israel has killed. And even if it's an accident, even if it's collateral damage, it's a lot of innocent lives that have been killed by Israel. So you are correct that we don't want to see a single innocent civilian caught up in the crossfire between the IDF and the Hamas terrorists. And we're making a maximum effort. I mean, we've been leafleting and urging people to leave areas of combat from day one. And, and the truth is, most Gazans did vote with their feet and did exit areas of combat, and, and wisely so. We don't want to see a single Gazan civilian caught up in the crossfire. But we're working against a brutal enemy who deliberately wants to use Gaza civilians as a human shield to protect its war machine. And it makes our job just so much more difficult. But I think, and I've seen the numbers, and I can't share with them you yet, but when this is over, 
we can have a serious discussion when the fog of war is behind us. But I am convinced, though every single uh, uh, civilian death, and especially children, is a tragedy, and we don't want to see it, in comparative numbers, uh, if you compare Israel to perfection, of course we'll fall short. But if you compare Israel to other Western armies who've been fighting terrorists in, in built-up urban areas, I think Israel will not come out badly in the comparison. On the contrary, I think it will be seen that the IDF really has done everything that is humanly possible to try to safeguard innocent civilians. It's very hard to believe that, especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family, nine members of his family who are not members of Hamas, not members of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not members of any group, just nine people just trying to live their lives. First of all, I, I extend my sorrow to him and my sympathies. But if I saw your report correctly, and, and please correct me if I say something wrong, that happened in northern Gaza, uh, in Gaza City, where a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave. And most of them did. If there was like 1,200,000 people there, there was only a, a couple of tens of thousands left. And one has to ask, yes, they had ample opportunity to leave. I'm, I'm, I don't know what happened. I don't have the specific circumstances. I know there's deadly combat going on now in the north still between these IDF and, 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 and Hamas terrorists, yes? And we don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire, but why didn't they heed the advice and oh, you leave can't blame, the area? You, you had, can't blame them. There's now I fighting, don't blame them. But you can't, there's fighting in the south now. Where, where are, I mean, I've been asking this since October 7th. Where are these people supposed to go? So in, at the beginning, it was easier because the fighting was concentrated in the north and we just asked people to move south. And that was relatively simple. Yes, I'm not saying totally simple, but relatively simple. Just go south of the, of the, of, of the river. But uh, now we're being more specific because it is more complicated in the south. We've actually designated areas uh, in the south which are safer areas, which are especially there's a number of them. <laughs> Uh, the, the, we've shared the maps with, with, with the United States. It's been shared also with the UN and the other humanitarian organizations. Listen, we have to hit Hamas in Khan Yunus. They've got a, a strong military infrastructure there. They've got a, a network of tunnels. If we want to destroy Hamas's military machine, and we must, we have to act in the south as well. Uh, senior Hamas commanders are there under the ground in Khan Yunus. We can't not go there. But in going there and to, to defeat Hamas, we're also going to make a major effort once again to try to safeguard civilian lives. And that's why we're urging people there now to move to the new areas that we, we've specified. And as the operation, ground operation starts, I'm, I can assure you that the escape routes, the humanitarian corridors that will allow civilians to get out of harm's way will still be there. Mark Rego, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, sir. Coming up next, a slew of new warnings today about Donald Trump if he were to win a second term. In the heartland of America, this is God. A stark warning in our 2024 lead. A special issue of The Atlantic magazine today lays out a detailed, compelling case about specifically what could happen if Donald Trump returns to the Oval Office. Two dozen essays by Atlantic writers outline how the threats to democracy will be bigger than ever before, potentially changing America forever. Some of those Atlantic editors and contributors join us now. Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor, let me start with you. These essays cover how Trump could carry out a, a revenge, a retribution presidency, what might happen to NATO, how women could be targets, how Trump will get away with it all this time. In an editor's note, you write, the country survived the first Trump term, though not without sustaining serious damage. A second term, if there is one, will be much worse. Tell me about 
why you decided to publish such a sprawling account of, of what might happen, the, the impetus of this issue? Uh, I think that people have normalized uh, the possibility of Trump coming back to office. Uh, we get used to anything. That's one of our, to, to the credit of human beings, we can get used to anything. Uh, and I think we're, we're too accustomed to the idea that he's coming back. And I don't think people understand that, um, that the Trump who comes back is going to be very different than the Trump we had the first time. And the Trump we had the first time, culminating in January 6th, was a pretty troubling phenomenon. But I, I think this time uh, he is coming bent on revenge. David Frum has a very excellent uh, uh, essay about that. He's coming with the idea of revenge. He knows how government works. He knows how he was thwarted the last time. He's not going to be hiring the so-called grown-ups to run the cabinet. You, know, you remember Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson and John Kelly, all these establishment figures who were there to Bill, impart, Barr. Bill Barr to keep yeah. him in check. No more people keeping him in check, right? Um, and so, you know, it wouldn't be surprising, and Anne is an expert on this, uh, it wouldn't be surprising uh, to find him pulling out of NATO on well, the first day. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, Anne, your essay focuses on NATO, which is the European treaty uh, existing since World War II, basically to be a, a check on uh, what was in the Soviet Union. Now, Russia, as Trump once notably said, quote, I don't give a shit about NATO. That's my second um, shit. This uh, oh, that's third. Uh, uh, but Congratulations. Every, every time I'm quoting, every time I'm quoting somebody, uh, I think Trump. Every time I'm quoting Trump, you argue that even if Trump is prevented from leaving NATO, NATO, it, it might not matter. You write, quote, when I asked several people with deep links to NATO to imagine what would happen to Europe, to Ukraine, and even to Taiwan and South Korea if Trump declared his refusal to observe Article Five, which is an attack on one member of NATO, is an attack on all. All of them agreed that faith in collective defense could evaporate quickly. So explain what that looks like. So what people, most people don't realize is NATO isn't just a treaty, it's a kind of psychology. So it's not that Russia is afraid to attack Poland because, you know, we wrote something down in a treaty and somebody signed it and ratified it. It's because he genuinely believes that if he attacks Poland or he attacks Germany or he attacks Britain, that the United States will come in and all the NATO countries will come together and fight. And once we have a president who makes it clear that he won't do that under any circumstances, even if there's pushback, even if the military starts shouting, even if the Senate tries to prevent him, that psychological barrier is down. And then really, you know, at any moment when Putin says, right, all these arms are coming into Ukraine via Poland or via Romania, why don't I hit the train stations they're coming in on? Um, and, and without the assurance that the United States will do something about it, he's therefore much more likely to do it. And of course, once we lose the assurance of collective defense in one part of the world, then why would we have it in another part of the world? If you can't trust America to help its NATO allies, which are its oldest allies, then why do you think America would help Taiwan or South Korea? And remind our viewers, Article 5 has only been invoked once, and that was when? It was to help the United States after 9-11. Could I add one Quick yeah. point about this to show the importance of the United States to this security infrastructure. The, the American military is bigger than the combined militaries of, of Europe. So in, in other words, Putin knows that without the U.S., if the U.S. withdraws from the scene, he could have his way in a way that he wouldn't have otherwise. McKay Coppins, your essay is titled Loyalists, Lapdogs and Cronies in a Second Trump Term. There would be no adults in the room. It's a point that Jeff was just talking about. It's also a point that John Carl made earlier in the show about how there will be uh, no Cipollonis, no Bill Bars. Um, Trump believes that Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr, his two attorneys general, betrayed him, even though they were they were really just doing their jobs. And they were 
frankly, rather sycophantic, as it were, on many other issues. Um, what would happen to the Justice Department under a, a second Trump presidency? Well, Trump has already made clear that he wants to use the Justice Department to visit revenge on Joe Biden, for one, other political enemies. He also wants to use it to protect himself, right? He's obviously currently in the process of going through many, uh, you know, lawsuits. What he, what I've heard repeatedly talking to people in Trump's orbit is that he will prioritize in all positions, but especially attorney general obedience over everything else. He wants an attorney general who will do exactly what he says when he says it and not question his orders. So to that end, who, who, some of the names that have been floated, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, uh, Mike Lee, uh, Pam Bondi in Florida. Um, these are people that Donald Trump believes will do exactly what he tells them to do. And really, that is the ethos that I think he hopes to uh, you know, reign over all of his government. He wants people both at the high profile levels and at the lower level, the rank and file level of government bureaucrats, people who he can bend to his will because he feels that, that you know, he was burned by the deep state in, in his first term and he doesn't want to repeat that mistake. And so, for instance, he, he, just declared, he just declared that he would do everything he could against MSNBC the other day because he doesn't like their coverage because they're a progressive channel. What might that look like? So he could use the Justice Department to, uh, you know, try to, well, there are a number of mechanisms, right? He's talked about trying to bring the FCC into the White House and use that to decide which uh, networks he can he can punish or shut down, revoke their license. MSNBC is not a, you know, it's a cable network. Right, so it's not he, governed by the FCC. Right, but he could try to use the Justice Department to find innovative new ways to crack down on them legally. You know, the, the question, the, the attorney general is one thing. The question is, what about the rank and file loyals, lo, lawyers at the Justice Department who, for example, have to file subpoenas or mm -hmm. uh, do the actual work to put these lawsuits together? Uh, part of the work that's being done is that he wants to uh, essentially politicize up to 50,000 federal workers with this uh, plan that he has put in place through a uh, through an executive order that would make it so that everyone at the Justice Department is on board with his uh, agenda. And if they're not, they can be fired at will. Absolutely chilling. Absolutely chilling. Um, everyone stay with me. We're going to uh, take a quick break. We'll be back with the team from the Atlantic in one second. And we're back with the 2024 lead and the team from The Atlantic. They're out with a special issue today laying out what could happen if Donald Trump wins uh, the 2024 uh, election. And, and Jeffrey, you also wanted to talk about a piece that Tom Nichols has. You have 24 different essays about all the different things that might change for the worse should Donald Trump be elected to a second term. Um, Tom Nichols has one about the military, how that could be affected. The military is obviously supposed to be removed from politics. Right. And remember that Donald Trump has directly threatened to prosecute the former, now former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, who, th who he thinks subverted Trump. I mean, what Mark Milley did was stand up in defense of the Constitution. Uh, and so the worry, obviously, is that there is an extremely stringent process for picking generals. Right. Uh, very, very apolitical process. It's always about competence. It's always about uh, sterling character and, 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 and experience. And there is a real worry that Trump will reach down into the pool of colonels, let's say, which is a much bigger pool and pick people again who are obedient to him. The thing that Trump never understood about his quote unquote generals. So he used to say my generals. They're not his generals. They're the Constitution's generals. The generals are there to defend the Constitution. Um, they report to the president, but they are mandated by law to 
to, to resist illegal orders. And so the worry in the next Trump administration, if there is one, is that he will pick people again, as, the, as he might do in the Justice Department, pick people to be generals who are loyal to him and not to the Constitution. And that is a serious anxiety that, that people should have. Liz Cheney this morning on the Today Show, uh, McKay, um, said that it's uh, very possible that if Trump actually is returned to the White House, this might be the last presidential election uh, in our lifetimes because he could subvert the Constitution, subvert democracy, that he is just president until his death, um, which sounds silly, but if you know history, um, there is democratic backsliding. Go, people out there, go ahead and Google democratic backsliding. It's a term. There are countries that have thriving democracy and then they don't anymore. And, and the way it happens is it, it's slow at first and then all at once, right? This is what you hear all the time. I mean, look, a lot of the, the things that we talk about could hap- that, that might happen in a second Trump term might sound paranoid or alarmist, right? But the reality is you have to look at the record of the man who is seeking the presidency. And he has shown time and time again that he doesn't acknowledge democratic guardrails. He doesn't care about democratic institutions. He cares about himself and his own preservation of power. And so what the, what the basement of that, what the floor of that is, it is open for debate. But I, I think that none of us are going to, uh, to err in being too cautious about speculating about what happens. I think that it's all rooted in, in his own record and what he's saying out loud as a presidential candidate. After January 6th, it's really hard to argue anybody's paranoid. No, I don't think anybody can now be paranoid. Um, and it's also important to remember that after January the 6th, the rest of the world has been watching what's going on in the United States. And some of what we're seeing already, um, whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine or whether it's the breakdown of order in the Middle East, some of that is happening because people no longer quite trust the United States. So some of these processes have, in fact, already begun. All right, Jeff and McKay, thanks. One all for being here. I wish you could say, I could say that it's, a, it's an uplifting issue. It's not, but it is a must-read. The Atlantic Magazine out today. Thanks so much. Today marks 250 long days that American journalist Evan Gershkovich has been locked up behind bars unjustly in Russia. His parents will join me next. We are back with our world lead 250 days ago today. American journalist Evan Gershkovich was detained in Russia. His crime, practicing journalism. On March 29th, Russia's intelligence service, the FSB, detained him on trumped-up espionage charges, which he, his employer, the Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. government vehemently deny, and for which the Russians have provided zero evidence. Twenty days later, a Moscow court denied him bail in a closed-door hearing and sent him to the notorious Lafortova prison, where Evan has been since. Fifty-five days after he was detained, his pretrial detention was extended. On day 85, the court upheld the extension. On day 148, 148 another extension just last week. Day 244, it was extended a third time until January 30th. If convicted, Evan faces 20 years in prison. And Evan's mother, Ella Milman, and his father, Mikhail Grishkovich, join us now. Ellen, do you have any hope today, this 250th day of your son's unfair detention? Well, we are still, we embrace the American trait of optimism. And we are still very, very hopeful that uh, the promise that President Biden gave us that rings in my ears every single day that he's going to do whatever it takes 
and that he um, understands our pain as a parent that will bring Evan home and the U.S. government will act and do whatever it takes to bring Evan home. After 250 days, over eight months, that's what we are hopeful for. Yeah, I went through this with the, with the Reed family, with Trevor Reed. And yeah. Trevor's home, so it can happen. Mikhail, what, what has the U.S. government, what has the Biden administration shared with you lately about the effort to get Evan home? Uh, unfortunately, we know as much as the uh, public at large. We don't have a, we're not privy to what the U.S. government is doing um, behind the scenes. But uh, we appreciate that they're working very hard. But uh, uh, Evan has uh, missed uh, his birthday celebration. We kept a table for him, a uh, chair for him for Thanksgiving. And he's going to miss uh, Christmas uh, and holiday season. Ella, the Wall Street Journal story today said um, Evan got 300 pages of letters all translated into Russian for his 32nd birthday in October. His friends even made a, a website, mailing list, social media accounts to keep people updated. How has this outpouring of support helped Evan in this horrible situation, if at all? Well, he is uh, in Moscow at the Lefortova prison which is a tough one. It's designed to isolate you, to break you down. And the letters that he receives uh, gives him a lifeline uh, to uh, keep his spirits up. He needs to fight uh, every single day, as he put it in his letter to me, that uh, uh, it's like swimming against the stream every single day. He's fighting to keep his uh, spirits up, um, his mental strength, his physical strength. He exercises. He walks uh, outside of his cell. Um, it's six steps, six steps, six steps, and six steps. Yeah. And um, it's tough. And we are urging the United States government to bring Evan home after 250 days and over eight months. Mikhail, we've, we've heard Evan's friends and colleagues talk about his wit, his humor, his empathy. What do you miss most about him? All of that and, and a lot more. Uh, I, I miss my son. Yeah, I can't imagine. Ella, what's the best, what best way for people who don't know Evan personally, what's the best way for them to support him? Uh, to support him is uh, writing letters. Uh, keep uh, this positive attitude. Uh, he don't talk to him about uh, in past sense. Evan is thinking about his future. We are waiting for him and uh, we expect him to come back and every day is wait a day too long and we want him to come back. Mikhail, what do you want the world to know about Evan? Uh, President Biden called him absolutely courageous. He is a journalist. He went to Russia to report, uh, to, to let the world know what's going on. Uh, it was important work and uh, um, he's a young man. He's a journalist and uh, I, want him, I want him home. We all want him home. We all want him home. 
and he needs to come home now. Ella Millman and Mikhail Gershkovich, thank you so much. We will thank keep, you. We're going to stay on top of this story until he's home. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Expelled Republican Congressman George Santos appears to already have a new line of work. And if for some reason you really miss hearing his voice, you can just shell out 200 clams and you can get your very own personalized video message from the so-called former congressional icon. That's literally what Santos's biography says on Cameo, the website where you can pay celebrities to send you messages. It's unclear how many of these he's making, but for those willing to pay for it, you can get your hands on Santos giving a pep talk. And we know at least one person who bought one. Well, embattled Democratic Senator of New Jersey, Bob Menendez, got one thanks to his colleague, Democratic Senator of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, exactly who I would want advice from. It was kind of a needling, as it were. This note, Senator John Fetterman will be on Newsnight with Abby Phillip tonight at 10 Eastern right here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, on the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. Right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner? A CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.